0: Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Technology Law Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Ward. The Technology Law Podcast is dedicated to the craft of drafting and negotiating technology agreements. I have my own private practice that's dedicated to helping buyers and sellers of technology services and products close deals faster with less friction. I'm a former Oracle and Google Cloud attorney, and you can learn more about me and my practice at www.jaywardlaw.com and spell out the J-J-A-Y. On today's show, we'll discuss the 2020 Iowa Democratic Caucus technology fiasco with Chris Stetson. Chris is currently at Apple, but I wanted him to join the show largely based on his expertise with software development management. Chris was vice president of West Coast Engineering at Huge, and he was also a group vice president of engineering at Razorfish. As you're probably aware, all the results of the Iowa Democratic Caucus this year were called into question as a result of the failure of an app developed by a company called Shadow Inc. on behalf of the Iowa Democratic Party. The Democratic Party caucus workers this year were both unable to download the app or report results on it. Today, Chris and I will discuss what went wrong and how better technology contracting and software vendor management practices could have prevented the outcome. I hope you'll enjoy the show. (laughs) Okay, listeners, we're here with Chris Stetson of Apple, and today we're going into episode four of the Technology Law Podcast. And today we're going to look at the 2020 Iowa Democratic Caucus Technology Fiasco, a failure of technology contracting. I'll be joined by Chris for this podcast, and we're going to do a deep dive into what happened, why, and what could have been avoided through effective contracting protocols between a knowledgeable business stakeholder like Chris and a technology lawyer such as myself or one of you listeners. Um, And we're going to start the the program today. There's a quote from the New York Times that I wanted to read that Shadow's failure, Shadow being the development company of the app that went wrong, Shadow's failure suggests a potentially deadly combination of techno-utopianism and laziness. The two fuel each other the overarching belief that software will fix everything leads to slapdash engineering, procurement, and deployment. And I think we'll be covering each of those uh, sectors today, uh, engineering, proc- procurement, and deployment on the podcast. We're gonna see how everyone could have worked better, in turn, especially in terms of how the procurement function could have worked better to avoid the chaos. And at this point, I wanted to introduce my my guest, Chris Stetson. Chris and I have known each other socially and somewhat professionally. We worked on a few projects for a bunch of years. Um, Chris, can you tell us uh, what your title is, where you work, and what you do?
1: I'm a cloud infrastructure manager at Apple currently. Uh, Previously, I was a chief architect at EngineX. Um, Before that, I was an engineering vice president for a number of technology consultancies. Companies like Shadow that built applications
0: for customers. Exactly, exactly. And in your career, how many projects like the Shadow project would you say you've managed? <laughs> Look, You're rolling your eyes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I would, it's probably
1: on the order of
0: hundreds. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You're 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 a sophisticated buyer of these types of services. And in your current role, do you oversee projects like this? Is this the sort of thing that you do? I and mean, if you're cloud. Maybe not, but in your prior life, you did a lot of this.
1: Uh, in prior, uh, in my prior life, I managed a bunch of, of uh, mobile applications, web applications, the infrastructure to support all of those. So, yeah, I built I built similar applications to this. Um, yeah. Uh,
0: my current work is mostly in cloud infrastructure, so right. it's, a, it's a very different scale. But the, those software consultancies that you were working in, these would be the companies that enterprises would come to and say, we need this particular type of technology, and you'd be the point person for… Bring it to to completion. I imagine. Yes, exactly.
1: I, I uh, was at Razorfish. Ah, uh, yeah, right, right. Which was uh, at the time the largest uh, technology consultancy in uh, you know in the space that we were operating. Yeah. Um, I also worked at Huge again as the vice president of technology for that that organization. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely you know in my wheelhouse. I understand ex- exactly the process that that each. Part of, of uh, you know, both Shadow, and their holding company acronym, um, and the DNC uh, and the the Iowa Democratic Party went right. through in order to put together this this
0: idea and try and execute it. Um, cool, cool. So what we're going to do now, I'm going to recap some of the facts about the fiasco, and then Chris and I are going to start talking about best practices that uh, could have been undertaken in order to avoid this. And as, as I... Go down this this list of what happened. Uh, feel free, Chris, to, to to pop in. So everyone knows essentially what happened on election night in Iowa. There was an app that was developed by Shadow that was supposed to report um, election results. And, and how did we get there? Shadow was a company um, that was founded, I guess, or, or or rebranded by Acronym, which is a Democratic. Uh, backed organization. Uh, the goal, I guess, of both shadow and acronym is to develop technology that can give democratic candidates, uh, a, a leg up in the upcoming elections. Shadow, I gather, was known for its, um, texting technology that they had built texting platforms for several democratic presidential candidates, but the company had only been around in 20, since 2017 and had sort of a checkered operating history. So in any case, in May of 2019, the Iowa Democratic Party put out an RFP to a number of tech companies to build the technology for the 2020 primary. Microsoft, apparently, was one of the companies included in the RFP. Um, And I think Microsoft was in there because they had built technology for both the Democratic and Republican parties for for 2016. Uh, Twelve firms responded to the RFP, but... According to the Washington Post, the RFP did not contain any reference to an application for reporting results, which was interesting. Um, so Shadow re- responded, I guess, gathered the, 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 re- the reply to the RFP wasn't robust, and they got they got the deal. Um, but it was clear as they moved through 2019 that there were problems with the technology. Uh, So much so that by the weekend, just before um, the uh, Iowa caucuses, they were still testing the application. It it hadn't been released, certainly not not able to uh, be ready to go. Um, In the end, according to the Iowa Democratic Party, Of the 1,750 Iowa precincts, only 624 people logged into the app at all, and only 439 people transmitted results via the app. So we had a problem with people getting access to the app per se, and then we had a separate problem in that once they got into the app, they couldn't get the information to the Democratic Party. Um, According to the Washington Post, quote, it was more than a basic coding error that caused the problems. When caucus leaders started successfully reporting data through the app, a separate system, also developed by Shadow, collated the information but spit out only partial results, according to a person familiar with the events. State party officials soon discovered the coding error, which would delay the final account by more than a day and raise new questions about the judgment of party heads, unquote. And then finally, that insult to injury, the last component, I think, of the evening that went disaster so long was support. Um, when the uh, uh, users of the app were having problems, they were given a number to call to get help, but the number was staffed by 50 volunteers, not support experts. And apparently, I, I read in the New York Times that the number was eventually posted online, and a bunch of 4chan ch- uh, followers did a denial of service so people couldn't get through. So all know a shit show. Chris, what are your thoughts?
1: So this is, a, a, a you know, one of those spectacular failures that occasionally happens in professional services organizations. Uh, usually it's not so public and such a, a you know, a disaster that it, it profoundly affects our democracy, right? Um, but it is it is nonetheless, uh, you know, something that occasionally happens in professional services. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this this is a classic example of overselling an idea uh, and under underpricing it, and hoping that it will uh, all come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the failure between that expectation and the the actual uh resources that are applied to it just caused this spectacular explosion of Mm -hmm. a shit show
0: now you mentioned that word underpricing it and you and i talked just before the recording you gave a great analysis to me let's go through that in terms of underpricing and what could have been delivered for the budget that was allocated
1: sure so the the pricing for the application was sixty eight thousand dollars when you translate that into uh, professional services pricing, uh, which is typically two hundred and fifty dollars per hour for a engineering resource, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that comes out sixty eight thousand dollars comes out to about two hundred and seventy two hours, mm-hmm. less than two months of time for a coder to build a android app an ios app, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all of the back-end application infrastructure right do testing on a large scale yeah. and then you know i'm not sure what else they they were providing you know but apparently support services of some sort or another all these things for 272 hours worth of work
0: yeah
1: um clearly to build that kind of application infrastructure and that sort of delivery with the testing that would be required given the scale and, and profile of the, the uh, application that would have been, you know, orders of magnitude more expensive.
0: Right. Right.
1: So the, the, um, that mismatch was, was the cause of, a great number of the issues. And and there was an expectation both on the buyer's part that they could get, you know, an application that did all this stuff yeah. for that kind of money and the the seller's part that they could somehow deliver this for, you know, what is essentially a, a, a less than, you know, a quarter of a year of a single person's salary. Right there's a, there, that's the mismatch. Yeah. at Fundamental.
0: Yeah. And I, I was making the, the point to you before in the pre-show that first of all, I, I think there's a, there's a role and a place for small development companies. There's absolutely a, wrong, a role for them to to be played. But when you're talking about a mission critical application and one of the most visible political contests in this country, if not the world, if your budget And it's the Iowa Democratic Party. They're not throwing Bloomberg money at this sort of thing. If the Iowa Democratic Party scoped the project effectively, they could have made the decision, you know what, we just can't afford it. The status quo has worked for decades. We'll just keep that. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was an option that I'm not sure why they didn't exercise when it became clear that this technology wasn't going to work.
1: Right, and that's that's fundamentally the, the the problem, and and unfortunately, you know, they they were probably sold a vision um, where Shadow came in and said, "We have this this existing code that we mm-hmm. built using that created a real time chatting app that exchanges yeah. information between a group yes. of people." Yes, and so Shadow came in and said, "We have this. We're just going to bolt on some stuff." Onto this already existing application mm-hmm. and it will do the tallying of the, the reports using the infrastructure we have. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the differential between you know a chatting app mm-hmm. and one that is designed to record and audit information that is absolutely yeah. critical again to the democracy of the United States of yes. America. Yes. The differential between those two things is huge. Yeah, and and the the kind of the fundamental uh, nature of the data exchange is huge. Yeah, in a chat app, you can have uh, eventual consistency. Mm-hmm. The idea that that you know what what one person sees is not necessarily what all the people see at the same time. Mm-hmm. Eventually, as long as it comes out to be consistent for everybody, that's fine. And so if somebody's off network, when they come back on, it'll reconnect. Right. The idea of it being transactional, where it's absolutely critical that, that my information get to the, the source and that is rendered out into an actual yeah. value, is a very different structure. Than the technology that they had, so they had again a differential in in fundamental technology design yeah. that that could have played a factor. I didn't, I haven't seen the code, right? So why. I haven't yeah, gone through. Right. And I, you know, they may very well have a transactional format, but it's not one that's required and is actually antithetical in some ways to the design of a chat application. Right, right. So there is is. Good reason to believe that that they took an eventual consistency approach, that again doesn't match the kind of, of requirements that that an auditable you know blockchain uh, transactional process of managing the the data needed to be.
0: I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, the the uh, aspect of what a specification, in the statement of work should have said for this and why that was important, but let's start with best practices that would have avoided this outcome. My number one is vendor due diligence and it gets back to who Shadow is and were they capable of even building this? I mean, they had the the text application, but one of the first things I would have asked as a technology lawyer, given this project, I would have asked, who's this vendor? What's our experience with them? What is their experience generally? I probably would have done a couple of Google searches and I, you know, I when I went to their website, I didn't see what I see at a Microsoft uh, website, at a at what I used to see at Razorfish: case studies, referenceable customers, uh, a team uh, slide or a team page that tells me who these guys are and gives me a sense of confidence that I can rely on them to do the project. What, what do you do in terms of due diligence on, on vendors in this kind of scenario?
1: So I think it's it's important to understand how uh, uh, professional consultancies and the holding companies that own them operate. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, essentially these, these Holding companies that own a bunch of professional consultancies that, in some manner or another, will uh, organize together and and can deliver a you know a variety of, of, of uh, slightly overlapping but mostly complementary services mm. around something. Mm. In this case, it's it's political advertising, uh, engineering development, technology uh, consulting, that sort of thing. For uh, parties and and candidates and uh, uh, campaigns at at Holt. I mean, uh, and they they are looking for uh, and so this holding company acronym goes and looks for companies that can fulfill different parts of of that that ec- ecosystem. You know, in this case, it was engineering uh, uh, resources to do development of applications, particularly probably mobile phone applications that do things for within this ecosystem. Shadow was, was a, a, a new company. It had been around for a couple of years and then it was bought by, by the holding company. Um, uh, and you know, they are essentially told to, to, um, uh, make money for this larger organization. They mm-hmm. have to siphon off some amount of that money to that that organization. So the incentive for a small group like Shadow that's newly acquired into this holding company is to to really get clients and and start building applications for right. them as quickly as possible. Right. Um, and, and they will often undersell, you know, initially in particular in order to get to get customers
0: would that have been a red flag for you their sort of history in terms of being a new company and this relationship with acronym how would you have tried to address that
1: so I it, the the it, it is certainly a red a potential red flag the, mm-hmm. the risk factor is higher mm-hmm. when you have a, a new uh, company that is um, that is uh, part of an of a operating Mm-hmm. Uh, holding company like like mm-hmm. um, they can be very successful and they can be very good. Right. Uh, so it, it it is it's, but it can also be terrible. You
0: have got to ask about it. You yes. got to drill down. You got to talk them. to the people. Yes. Yeah, right.
1: Yes. Okay. And, and you know, in particular, the 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 engineering bona fides of of these yeah. people needs to be. Uh, verifiable in right. some manner or another. Right. They, the the resumes of the people need to be stellar. You need to know that you're actually getting those people.
0: Yes, and that's actually ties into the technology contracting piece of this. In terms of if there are uh, specific unique personnel um, that you as the buyer stakeholder want on the project, we can write into the contract that these resources will be the resources for the project. And if these resources somehow are not available. At least it gives us a potential termination right, uh, but it raises the red flag early enough that you can catch catch the problem. Right. All right.
1: Cool. And particularly if if the contracting process moves along at you know at a standard pace and is not bogged down by by a lot of, of negotiations. Yeah. Uh, which you know it is a common problem in working with with organizations as you start building out a contract naming resources, putting them into the the, uh, the contract, but then the contract takes months right. to to fill and, and those resources need to be reallocated. And the, the
0: vendor the, the vendor may want to on day one give you that particular team. Yes. But if the contract's going sixty days, seventy five days, they've got to put those people to work. They just can't hold them for you forever. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. All right. right so we're gonna to move to second best practice, which is to the focus on the Call it what you want. The spec, uh, the statement of work, it's the description of what's going to be developed. And before we lead into this, I want to put some framework around this. This is from, again, the Washington Post. Linda Nelson, a 68-year-old retired elementary school teacher in Council Bluffs, received a notice over the weekend before the uh, primary, That a new version of the mobile app she would use three days later later for Iowa's first in the nation caucuses was ready for her to test. Three days, when Nelson downloaded the software on her smartphone, she couldn't figure out how to log in. She tried one pin. She tried the ID for the precinct she would be chairing in Western Polk County. She tried another pin. Nothing works. Nelson wrote in an email to the state party. Her problems were replicated across the state on Monday, the day before the primary as precinct leaders failed to access the app and reported being locked out as they sought to punch in numbers to report them to state party officials. And one especially stark example, just one precinct leader in all of Scout County, which is part of the Quad Cities region, was able to successfully use the software according to the county's Democratic Party chair. Now, where do we start in terms of things that went wrong there that could have been avoided with an adequate statement of work or um, specification of the software?
1: And I think, you know, certainly uh, the, the specification of software from my perspective is, is really the driving force. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, you will be able to write the contract. And, yeah. and so that specification needs to be as, as clear and defined as possible.
0: And it's a frustration of mine as a technology lawyer that oftentimes a business stakeholder has identified the vendor, the vendor has given us their standard contract, and the business stakeholder has said, can you review this so we can sign it? And I would I, I, where's, where's the spec? What are they supposed to do for us? Well, we haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, it makes it hard for us to do sort of or implement the protective measures that we need. Without an adequately designed spec, but in your thoughts, what what is an adequately adequately designed spec supposed to do, and what are its benefits? Why have it?
1: So let me let me address that that first part, uh, and, and then I'll address the second. And yeah. The first part is that that it's it is often prudent to go through a requirements and design phase uh, with uh, and, and pay for that separately mm. um, because it, it it gives you an opportunity to 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 define the use cases, what the data requirements need to be, what the transaction requirements need to be, what the the performance and scalability metrics need to be and have that, you know, and go through the process of actually defining all of those things uh, into a coherent manner that that the engineering team can build a, you know, can estimate uh, an effort against, and the, the uh, customer, the buyer, will have a very good understanding of what they think they are buying. Yeah. Um, and, and the second point of that is that, that, that at the end of the day, that specification should drive a test plan. Yes. The test plan needs to enco- encompass and incorporate all of the requirements and the use cases that are defined in the specification. Right. And the test plan needs to meet those, needs to show that the application meets those requirements to the point where if they pass, the final payment is given. If they don't pass, the application is not ready for deployment. And it becomes a, a very clear definition of delivery that is contractually uh clear, that is, is technologically clear and allows you both to come away with a very good understanding of what needs to happen.
0: Tell me about that test point a little bit, because one of the things that clearly happened here was the app was or the app's audience was going to be seniors who retired in Iowa on their mobile devices. Now that's a very different audience than a bunch of CS grads at Soda Hall just down the street from us. How do how do you how do you, uh, how do you draft the test plan to factor that in? Because if you get an audience that doesn't a test audience that doesn't match the actual audience, there could be obviously problems.
1: Right, and, and I think that's that's important to to you know understand the scaling of the test plan. Uh, the test plan is is not just the ultimate deliverable of can you know uh, Iowa caucus managers or you know the, the people who are actually doing this tally, can they they go through the process of, of you know uploading the results through the application? That's that's ultimately what needs to be delivered. But there's a whole hierarchy of tests that need to happen before they you even get to that point. You need to know that that you know as the, the application is being written that all of the code is being tested at the unit te- test level. So you want to, you know, in the the uh, application, in the, the contract and in the test plan, there needs to be a a, uh, a metric in there around unit testing that all unit tests pass. And if they don't, then the, the code is not uh, incorporated into the code base. Mm-hmm um and before delivery of the application all unit tests must pass
0: and the unit tests have the target audience as the the unit tests are are very
1: focused on the the actual functions in the application uh-huh. and do they work as they're supposed to right. so if you give it a certain input you will get a certain output right. and and the unit tests are very much focused on this particular you know Add these two numbers together, and it should come out like right, this. Right. As you scale up and start doing integration testing, for example, with a mobile app that is talking to a backend yeah. application, you need to know that there are integration tests that are verifying that, that the data that this sends goes to that, that backend server and right. comes out in the proper format. Right. That integration test and those integration tests need to be built into the contract and in the test plan. Right, right. Once you get past that, you then need to have a, a beta test and user test process right. in which the actual people who are working with it go through a simulated scenario of actually having to log in to various places where they are doing their caucusing, mm. record Data that is similar and, and changing in the same kinds of ways that the caucus goers reporting with the first alignment, second alignment, all through that process. And that information needs to get, get flow through as a test process. Uh, and only then once that has been <laughs> verified, right. is that application ready for delivery. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it, it's, Spelling out essentially what people's actual expectation for the quality and delivery of the application is. Yeah, and it needs to be written into the contract. As and in some ways, there's there's a an engineering uh, set of principles called test-driven development, hmm. where essentially you go through the process of of, of writing your tests. And then writing code in order to make the test pass. Mm-hmm. So you, you, the tests sort of define what it is that you're delivering. Um, in this case, we're kind of going through test driven contracting yeah. of using the tests as the the ultimate delivery and requirement of the application and the contract.
0: Right. Right. And the the failure of a test gives the buyer the opportunity to have visibility in the process. To yes. be able to say, you know what, we need to go to plan B because clearly we're not meeting the testing uh, 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 thresholds, results uh, that we need on a timely basis. And I think that's the, the biggest benefit of having these protocols in place and specified in the contract. Let me push back for a second. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. One of the reasons that um, apparently Shadow and the Iowa Democratic Party did not release the app earlier. Did not do actual testing. Was they they were a fear they were afraid of security risks that the that the app would get um, hacked if they released it for testing too early or too publicly. What's your take on that? You, is that a valid concern? And, and even if it is a valid concern, is that the is that a valid way to respond to it? Uh,
1: it, it absolutely is. You should always be concerned about your application being hacked mm-hmm. and the potential for it to be hacked especially in this environment both by uh, you know local kids script kiddies as as they're called in the industry um, who are just playing around with you know stuff that's happening in their neighborhood to uh, you know professional trolls to state